Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. And we're off! Natalie, get yourself on mute! Right, it's all very well you telling me that I look like I'm glowing and that I look nice, but now we've got some actual work to do. I've had enough of these bloody compliments. <laughs> um, my name's <laughs> my name's Nick. This my name is Nathaniel Metcalf, and you're listening to Nick and Nathaniel Metcalf, sir. Five Star Family Fun Size Fan Club. Just fan club, but uh, oh, do you know what we haven't said in a while? Get yourselves over to iTunes and write us some five star reviews because I think that anything less is criminal. It is. It's, it's, it's bang out of order, is what it is. Bang out of order. There is, like, a couple of fairly low reviews on there, which were there specifically in the early days, just to wind me up. Mm. But uh, we sent the Rosas round, and now they're in uh, COVID court. Uh, it's honest not to give it five stars as well. It's, it's crazy. Just, it's honest. It's absolutely fucking crazy. I mean, we had Samantha Morton on last week. We did. And, she, you know, and she told us... It's really good that you keep doing this. And uh, I don't think she's ever listened to the show before. I don't think she really knows who we are. And I don't think she really cares that we're still broadcasting the week after. But, by God, it meant something at the time. And uh, I think, yeah, in a way, we are heroes. We We are the true heroes of lockdown, I would say, Nathaniel. I like to think when people go out and clap some key workers that they're thinking about me and you sometimes when they were doing it. Well, I know I was. Yeah. When I was clapping, I was thinking about me and you. Well, me. I was thinking of me, really. You've um, done a great job this, this. You've uh, entertained the nation in this difficult time. Entertaining the nation, yeah. Uh, not just the nation. It's international. Because were we not, like, in the top 200 in the Korean uh, iTunes chart? I think so. Mal- the Maltese people... They were with. They probably had a bit of COVID, and they probably Malta fucking blew it though, didn't they? Because we were in the top forty in Malta, and then the next week we were in the we were just over the top one hundred. But Korea actually does mean more because I would say there's maybe um, less English speaking people in Korea. I don't know. It's not Europe, but I am a big fan of Korean food, so it sort of meant more to me. I mean, I do like Maltesers, but I'm not sure if they're actually from. Hmm. Let's go. Natalie, can you look into that, please? Um, so, I yeah, we are not just entertaining the nation, but we're entertaining the internation. Uh, yeah. no, that, does that mean... The nation. The, inter, the, the, the international nation. Uh, the, we're online. So, um, we're part of the WWW, uh, which is the World Wrestling Web. Um, dot federation uh, it's C now WCW dot number 88 in Malta now <laughs> number what 88 in Malta we've gone up again fucking hell if none of you know what the fuck we're talking about then uh, go back and listen to some earlier to be honest we didn't do the first few in lockdown did we um, no we were sort of uh, holding out to see how long it would take but um, it looks like we're going to be here for the long haul, uh, the rest of our lives. So it's good that we worked out pretty early on how to monetize this awful disease, because uh, <laughs> we are absolutely raking it in with this show. So tell your friends, <laughs> rule number one, first rule of 
fan club. We've been saying that so many weeks. What's yes. this? This is our 100th episode together. It is, together. So we've been saying first rule of fan club all this time, and I've completely forgot. I found the press release, or not the press release, our pitch treatment for the show. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I reread it. It might have been on the website even, but I completely forgot that first rule of fan club was a reference to Fight Club. <laughs> I completely, completely forgot. Oh, it sort of like means more to me than Fight Club even. Um, we got. Um, I'm, I, I'm Nick. This is Nathaniel Metcalf. We are doing. We do a show called Fan Club. It's not our fan club. It's a show that we are a fan of. People we're a fan of. We have guests and talk to them what they're a fan of. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes. If we remember, we remember. Um, a lot of the time, we're just fans of the people that are on, or yeah. if not specifically the person, the genre. And uh, um, oh, I'm just fans. Of, do you know what I've done that I haven't done in a long time? I had a black coffee. About 40 minutes ago. So, uh, good luck trying to get a word in edge race this week, Nathaniel. <laughs> um, fucking hell, I'm fucking... Uh, um, because we got, we got tweeted. Yeah, I've had so much coffee. I've got a gig. I've got my first gig in about five months later. Real gig in real life? No. Uh, I'll always be comedy online. I've okay. got my first gig in ages. And, and maybe what I'll do is I'll have a black coffee and I'll just write some bullet points and I'll just do it like that. Um... Anyway, we got asked the other day what films are better than books. Yeah, I really struggled to think of any in the moment. I kept thinking of books that are better than films, which is wanky. I know it's sort of like... But they are. A lot of the time, books... You've got so much more time with a book. Uh, and even some absolute classics. Uh, I think one of my favourite books... If not my favourite book of all time is One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. And, um, and it, it's my favourite... Maybe I've t talked about this before, but it's my favourite because it was the um, orange book which had a picture of Jack Nicholson on the front, uh, and I rented it out from my school library. So I must have been 16 or 17. Maybe I was in the sixth form, so maybe I was lower sixth form. And I read it all, and it's not a particularly thick book, but what it does have is tiny print, and I am a slow reader. And so if you've got, like, bigger print, your reward for reading is that you get to turn a page and so you know you'll have read for like half an hour and you'll look at or an hour and you'll look at the chunk of the book that you've read and it'll be quite substantial whereas if it's tiny print you can have read for like an hour and you've read like maybe like you know eight pages i'm such a slow reader it's actually ridiculous um i think i've actually i haven't looked into it but i have real difficulty learning lines and real difficulty reading and concentrating i think i've got something um, I hope I do, otherwise I've got no excuse. <laughs> um, but it took me such a long time to read One Flew for the Cuckoo's Nest, but I did read it. And by the time I got to it, I just felt really um, like I'd achieved something. And it's a beautiful book, it's absolutely wonderful. And when I saw the film, I was, uh, even though it's a classic... I was really disappointed with it, and it wasn't at all, And I knew it was Jack Nicholson, because you grow up with that imagery your whole life. Mm -hmm. But um, like through osmosis, you even feel like you've seen the film. I didn't like the music, which is the first thing that hits you when you watch the film. Um, I, uh, yeah, but we're not talking about... Uh, Natalie's just saying what, what books are better than the film. 
And I know a lot of people that worked on that film, so I'm probably not going to slag that off. But that's that's you're saying that the book is better than the film, Natalie, and that is that's the opposite of the point that we're trying to make. Although I am talking about anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, one for the cooking it. I was, it's weird. I've, I've seen it a couple of times since. There's like a twist in the not a twist, but there's an event that happens halfway through the book, which is missing from the film, which I think is actually quite an important event. Um, I don't know why I'm doing spoilers for a book that's 50 years old. It was originally, the film was originally meant to star Kirk Douglas because Kirk Douglas um, played R.P. McMurphy on stage. And um, then, uh, we've talked about this definitely, Michael Douglas bought the rights to the, to the play to turn it into a book. Danny DeVito's in it as is Christopher Lloyd, but that's got less to do with it. Danny DeVito is in... Um, although Christopher Lloyd and Danny DeVito were both in Taxi. Um, and, yeah, so, and Michael Douglas produced it, and then Michael Douglas later went on to use uh, Danny DeVito in Romance in the Stone, Jewel of the Nile, and then Danny DeVito directed War of the Roses, and uh, starring Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner. And, you know, that's uh, sort of fan club. Anyway, um, so Michael Douglas produced... Um, uh, one for the cooker's nest for his dad and then his dad was too old to play him so then they got Jack Nicholson Jack Nicholson's really good casting I mean I've had so much coffee that's, that's essentially what it is um, but I would say that yeah even the film that won so many Oscars compared to the book if I'd have just seen the film I'm sure the film would be an absolute stone cold classic but when you compare it to the book the book is just so uh, so amazing and I really really talk about non uh, uh, about I really talk about fiction books. Mm. I tend to read a lot of non-fiction books. I, t- oh, I was just about to do the book, the book again. The Dirt. It's one of my favourite non-fiction books, and the film is absolute dog shit. Um, yeah, it's just oh, and so so Fight Club came up. Going back to what we started off talking about. Oh, just just say something for about thirty seconds, Nathaniel. Okay. Well, I was thinking that they often say, don't they, that bad books often make quite good films because quite trashy books often work very well on screen. So they'd always, that books in that kind of 30s, 40s, 50s Hollywood, even quite pulpy, quite the books that would be quite throwaway because they often tend to make very good entertainments and you're able to take more liberties with them because they're not, uh, they're not seen as something like a holy text or something that you can't mess around with. So often quite big directors would buy rights to quite trashy books or quite sort of pulpy books and be able to sort of turn them into, shape them into whatever they wanted them to be. Yeah, I think that was slightly longer than 30 seconds, but yes, uh, you're right. Um, uh, I, I, think it's Robert, I think it was Robert Zemeckis that was saying, why don't you take a bad book and remake... Or why you take a bad film and remake a bad film? You know, um, it's weird. I mean, I'm going to mention it. The Thing is a remake of a 1950s film called The Thing from Another World, right? That's a black and white movie. John Carpenter remade it. It was, technically, it was a flop. It did really bad business. It came out the same year as E.T. And everyone loved Aliens uh, back in 1980-81. And then when The Thing came out, people were like, what's this? It's a horrible alien. So when they remade, rebooted, did a prequel to The Thing in 2010, I think it was, 
um, it was sort of weird because it was directly linked to the John Carpenter film, where in actual fact, if it was like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, they could have just done like a modern remake, and I think everyone would have been fine with that. The fact that it was attached to the John Carpenter film was weird. And again, if it had been a low-budget film and it had been all in Norwegian and it had actually been a straight prequel, then that would have been great. Like a low-budget Norwegian prequel to the John Carpenter film. But it wasn't. It was like an American film with American actors. They were saying that they were Norwegian, but they weren't really. I mean, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't really work as a prequel. But The thing is also based on a book, isn't it? Uh, who goes there? Hmm. And... Um, yeah, and, and I think it may have... I haven't read the book, um, and the, people say the film wasn't that great. The, the original film is good. It's just a different thing. It's a 1950s thing. And where and, and, and do you know what? The John Carpenter thing is a... Is a um, it's a body horror, very... It's used practical effects. It's very 80s. It's an 80s thing. And I think what they should... It's like The Fly and The Fly, you know? The Fly is a 1950s... Uh, science horror, and then the 1980s one is kind of like a social allegorical film um, about the AIDS epidemic, and uh, and it's kind of like if you're going to do a remake, you should make it absolutely important and relevant to. It doesn't. I don't mind so much about changing things. It's about making it relevant. That's why I didn't really mind the Robocop remake that much. Um, because, A, it can never touch the original Robocop, which is a perfect film for me. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. Um, uh, but, B, although it wasn't... It didn't take the satirical stuff from the original um, as much, they did sort of, like, root it in with kind of, like, um, a, a post-9-11 world where they were, they were like, um, a lot of the stuff was kind of like tapping into uh, conspiracy theories. There were a lot of conspiracy theories about 9-11 saying that uh, there was footage of um, World Trade Center, was it five? I think that that was the one that was in the financial district, like a couple of streets over from the actual World Trade Center. And there were reports that the fifth World Trade Center, I think it was the fifth one, had collapsed, and they were doing reports in front of the building and it hadn't collapsed, Yeah. Um, this is the conspiracy thing, right? Uh, and in Robocop, they kind of um, play on that, where they say that Robocop is dead, and then, but they haven't killed Robocop. They announce that he's dead before they've actually killed him, and then they realise that, oh, well, now we actually have to kill Robocop because we've announced it on the news. So it's kind of like taking like pop culture things and um, conspiracy theories and news stories, and it's updating them all. It's just a really sort of, like, toothless, kind of, like, sort of a pointless remake. But my point about Fight Club is, I said Fight Club was a better book than it was a film. And I don't think... I don't think that's true. I think it's one of the few books... And I think it's actually a perfect film adaptation... Yeah. I think page for page it, it is almost an exact um, translation. Even the stuff with the cigarette burns in the corner of the... The cigarette burns are the little white circles that you get on old films to tell the projector when to change reels. And you would think that that was a bit that they invented just for the film. But even that's in the book. 
I think there's a subplot, sort of like dream sequence, where um, Tyler Durden is on the beach naked with the narrator, and it's kind of like this gay fantasy thing. That's not in the film, but it's pretty much there. Um, they're pretty much, you know, uh, the whole film is kind of like a gay fantasy type thing. Um, so, yeah, I'd say that's perfect. And the other book that I don't think is better, I don't think the film is better than the book, but I think is a good companion piece. That's what I mean, really. It's companion pieces. The thing and the thing are companion pieces. The thing from another world and the thing are companion pieces. Whereas the other thing isn't having a dialogue with the original. It's just kind of like trying to cash in on it. It's not trying to sort of like take the ideas further, which I think is what's important. Um, but the other one is American Psycho, where the book is so graphic and gory and disgusting that I actually had to put the book down in some places. I think it's great. I loved it. But I've never had that reaction to a book where I've just been reading black and white words and or black words on a white paper uh, page and had to actually put the book down because it was so graphic. Whereas the film is genius because it takes the whole entire premise and the gist of the book, but it does it in a way that you can actually watch it. You know, when there is gore, it's used really sparingly, but um, but it doesn't really lose much of the message of the book, I think. Um, I remember reading the book of Out of Sight before I saw the film, and I think it's a weird... You have, then have a weird relationship with the film because you've already done... You've already kind of cast it in your head, and you sort of... Certainly a book like that anyway, that kind of Elmore Leonard crime film, it plays like a movie when you're reading the book. So you're sort of already going, who would that be if they did a film of this? And who would that be if they did a film? So I think that you have a sort of funny relationship with a film then. And I love the movie, but it's I've always thought that. And now, in that time between not seeing them, I always... I sometimes imagine certain scenes are in the film that aren't and things, because they're in the book, and you sort of have a different relationship with them. And the scenes that are in the book that are great, that never appear in the film, but you do have a different... I think, in a way, it can... You can never get fully on board with the film unless the director happens to make exactly the film you're imagining. Because you always have that thing that you feel like you've sort of <coughs> already made that film, and this happens, and this happens, and this actor's in it, and this actress is in it, and it has these people cast in it, or whatever. And if it doesn't, there's always that slight discrepancy, I think. Well, yeah. I mean, I read the screenplay for True Romance before I saw it. And, you know, it's a Quentin Tarantino script directed by Tony Scott. And, uh... <laughs> Did somebody say Wrigley? No, Tony! Oh, your mate Stephen Seagull has just turned up to take it, give you a lift back to back to Hollywood, where you're going to ruin some more of your uh, legacy, no doubt, Wrigley. Um, Tony Scott, right? And it's kind of like, it's weird that you're watching it and you've already sort of like imagined a film and you've got this film that's made by Tony Scott and Quentin Tarantino. And uh, was it even Joel Silver? Oh, it may have been. Well, the guy in it is sort of based on Joel Silver, isn't he? So probably not. Yeah. Um, 
But, yeah, so you've got these amazing filmmakers behind this film, and you're watching it, and you're still slightly disappointed that it's not quite the film that you had in your head. So, yeah, that's weird. Um, and what was the other thing that was like that? Oh, Natural Born Killers. I read the original... I think the original Tarantino screenplay was given away free on, like, a Total Film or an Empire or something like that. And I read that. And the film is obviously so different from the, from the screenplay because Oliver Stone basically only used half the screenplay and then rewrote it all, and it still ended up being three hours long. Um, yeah, and I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know if I really like the... Well, Natural Born Killers is obviously... I think... He never made it, so you never really know. But it was kind of like... It felt like the weakest of all of those films at that point. Mm. Not just the Oliver Stone version, but maybe the... Um, Tarantino, uh, Tarantino yeah. screenplay. But I think the film is actually... I've only seen it a couple of times, and it does make me really angry whenever I watch it, like ho- hyped up on adrenaline and angry. So maybe there is something in screen violence. But, um, uh, yeah, I've only seen it a couple of times, but I don't yeah, yeah, quite yeah. like it. Probably 25 years or something. Say it again. I don't think I've seen it in 25 years or something. Definitely. No... It was it was banned in England, wasn't it? Mm, for a little I think, while. I think my friend had a had a Australian VHS version of it, and I watched that when it was still banned. And then I think it was probably on like TV at some point. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't go back to it over and over again. I think it's too it's too sort of it's sort of too what it is to be satirical. Mm. You know, it's kind of like. It's a bit like Terminator 2, which is, which is great. But Terminator 2 is like this anti-violent movie that has, like... was the most expensive movie of all time because they spent it all on explosions. And it's like, don't shoot guns, but they're cool, aren't they? It's kind of like... It's a mixed message. Yeah, it's, I remember being quite impressive, but it almost wasn't quite as the film I think it was trying to be. What, Natural One Killers? Yeah. I probably think that Oliver Stone... Lacks. I think that if he's making something like Platoon, which is a very serious, issue-based, message-based movie, maybe he can inject elements of satire into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's really kind of like handling this very serious message. I think he's almost pr- he's almost too serious a guy to do comedy. When you look at films like U-Turn and W and Natural Born Killers, which require probably a slightly lighter touch to what he's got, the comedy falls flat. It's really just sort of like heavy-handed. And then the unpleasant bits are just unpleasant, you know? Mm. And it kind of like, you kind of need that, you know, Paul Verhoeven touch, where you're kind of, like, doing absolutely horrific things on film, but you're still sort of, like, going, watch is fine, I'm Dutch, you know? <laughs> it's kind of like... He's, he's got... He has got that likeness. He's got the Ed 209 absolutely destroying the shit out of a yuppie executive in a boardroom, which is one of the most disgusting things you've ever seen. But as an adult... Just the reaction to everyone all it's, it's it's one of, as a child seeing that film, it's terrifying. But as an adult, it's it is terrifying still, but it's also very funny. Just the reactions to the people around it. And I think that that's satire, isn't it? It's kind of like 
or maybe that's not the definitive um, definition of satire, but that is a version of it where you're watching it and you've got these... You've got this visceral reaction to something, whereas at the same time it's commenting on what you're seeing. And you're actually going, bloody hell, you're appreciating it on several levels all at the same time. It's commenting on what you're seeing, it's commenting on the characters within it, it's sort of like saying, this is what happens to these people, it's making this overall statement. The characters are commenting on it within the actual scene, and you've got this uh, instinctive guttural reaction to something, a visceral reaction, and it's kind of like... Um, I saw Robocop as a kid, and you very much take it on face value, but the more you... It's, that's it. It's a, it's, it's a great film, because the more you watch it and the older you get, it kind of unravels, and you go, oh, I didn't pick up on any of this. I didn't get yeah. any. And also, like when you first hear it, it's like a allegorical science fiction movie about Jesus, you kind of like go, well, well, how's that then? And then when you realise he gets killed at the beginning and then uh, he comes back to life again, he's resurrected, mm-hmm. it doesn't quite work. It's sort of... Wow. There yeah, are like, uh, I mean, I'm sure that's why they have that big thing of his, you know, that big thing of him getting his hands blown off and things, so you have that stigmatory thing as well, don't you? Yeah. Um, and then he walks on water at the end. But didn't Jesus walk on water? I don't know. I'm not a big. I'm not a big Bible fan. Um, no Robocop. It's no. Well, to be honest, I've never. I've never wanted to be a, a soul sucking, uh, money grabbing executive in a high rise building. So, I think Robocop did teach me something. I've never wanted to be a. Uh, prostitute-renting, cocaine-snorting criminal of the underworld. So maybe Robocop did put me on the right track. Huh? I've never thought of it that way, but you're right. I've never wanted to be the dad out of that 70s show, yeah? (laughs) So maybe Robocop... Robocop did put me on the right track. Huh? Huh, Nat? Huh, Nathaniel? Yeah. Never want it to be Ronnie Cox. Huh? Huh? Right. In any of his films, huh? Yeah. Never want it to be Ronnie Cox. He has a terrible time in almost every film he makes, actually, doesn't he? Oh, he has a nightmare. nightmare. Any film he doesn't have a bad time in is Beverly Hills Cop, and then he gets shot in Beverly Hills Cop too. Or is it three? Comparison. Which film does he get shot in? Two or three? Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah. Someone gets shot at the beginning of three, but I don't think it's Ronnie Cox. I think Ronnie Cox gets shot at the beginning of three. Of two. Those are films that I guess I need to... um, Not watch again. I don't know. I don't know. Never been a massive Beverly Hills Cop fan. How about you, Nathaniel? I like one, and I like two Beverly Hills Cop, and I like them a lot. I think they're a lot of fun. I, I could still watch them. Three, I think, it'd be a, a, like hard going. I think two is absolutely charmless, which is weird because it's Tony Scott, but it's kind of like I think two really works as like an action film, though, and I guess that's what it, he brings to it. He sort of takes it, you know. It's it's almost like I guess that it's. It's not necessarily a sequel to the first one in that sense, but he really brings it like a proper 
It feels like a proper 80s action film, I think. <laughs> yeah, which I don't think it, it should do, I mm. think. I, I love, I love uh, the mix of action and detective work and comedy that you have in Beverly Have you ever seen the film Running Scared with Billy Crystal and, uh, is it Gregory Hines? I think I've seen it on TV, but not for years and years and years. There's another film called Running Scared with uh, Paul Walker in it, so it's not that one. But it was sort of like made in the early... Do you know what? I reckon it was probably made after Beverly Hills Cop as sort of like a cash-in. Right. It's these two street-talking kind of... um, Billy Crystal... Well, it's weird, isn't it? Because it's Billy Crystal and it's Gregory Hines. And Gregory Hines was a tap dancer, dancer, and Billy Crystal was a comedian. And they put them in this buddy comedy action movie, which is uh, it's quite funny. And they're tracking down, like, a drug dealer or something. Uh, it doesn't really matter. And um, it's sort of... And I quite like the tone of it. I remember when I was young, tiny, me and my sister were around a friend's house... Um, and uh, our parents were in the other room having dinner, and Running Scared was on TV, and remember we watched it, and, like, a guy gets killed, I think, and they fish him out of a river, and, you know, it's a dead body, and so for, like, a four-year-old, it's pretty fucking um, intense. But, um... Oh, really loud plane going around outside my... I can hear it. Can you hear it? Oh, yeah. It's infiltrated your microphone on your computer. That's absolutely... okay. Well, sorry about that, guys. Um, That happened on Wednesday. Um, Pre-recording Wednesday. But, um, yeah, so, like, the tone is kind of, like, you've got dead bodies and stuff like that, and so for a kid it's, like, pretty intense. Uh, But then there's comedy that lightens it up, and it's kind of, like, feels sort of, like, gritty and grimy, which I guess is, like... It feels very early 80s, but it feels like... It's influenced from the 70s, yeah? Right. So it feels 80s, but it's it's taking, like, 80s kind of, like, storytelling and production and, hey, we're kind of working out how to make uh, low-scale blockbusters. Not Star Wars, but, like, big-budget sort of cop comedies that are real crowd-pleasers. Um, so it's kind of like taking a bit of The French Connection, which is really gritty and serious, and it's kind of adding comedy to it. And then when you get to Beverly Hills Cop 2, it's literally just 80s excess. They've kind of like gone, we'll make it as slick as we possibly can. Tony Scott's come along and done it. And so, and then when you get to Beverly Hills Cop 3, it's John Landis, and they've gone so far in the other direction, like it's, it only really works as a comedy. And any action sequences are sort of like, he's uh, got, he steals a car from a chop shop at the beginning and does a car chase. And the whole car is sort of like the doors are falling off and then the bonnet comes off and it's kind of like, and it's, it's just a comedy chase sequence. And you go, but you know how to do comedy car chases because you made Blues Brothers. And you did American Way Off in London with all of the car crashes at the end. So... What the fuck is this shit? Do you know what I mean? It's like, although I don't hate it, I don't hate the third one. Um, it's also that one, isn't it? That at that point, Eddie Murphy's taking himself very seriously, so he would be constantly going through the strips and going, "Oh no, Axel Foley just feels like he's being quite funny here. He's not like a cool cop like he is in the others." But it's like, but he isn't. 
He isn't. But he is in the second one. I don't think it's particularly fun. I don't think the second one's funny. I think the mm. second one... And if it is funny, it's because of Taggart and Judge Reinhold, as opposed to Eddie Murphy. Like, Eddie Murphy is sort of lovable in the first one, and the second one, he is cool. And in the third one, he is trying to be cool, but he's in sort of like this... Abs- I don't know. I don't know. There are, I think he's quite funny in the third one. I don't know. I haven't seen him in such a long time. No, I'd happily watch him again, though. I'm not... Yeah, I wouldn't be against it. Wouldn't be again it. Who directed the first one? Who was it? Was it someone like... I'm guessing, though. I want to say Martin Brest. Was it? I think it was. I think it was. What else did he do? He did War Games. Yeah, did he do... I thought I thought War Games was bad. Uh, so Martin... Martin Brest. Did he do, did Martin Brest do uh, Midnight Run? That makes sense. Yes. I'm saying yes because I'm taking a pun. I think he did. Yes, yes he did, he did says yes, Natalie. Did. Um, oh, and Natalie says, the, get ready to play the music, Nathaniel. Natalie says, the Da Vinci Code. Uh, Tom Hanks made it better than the book. Um, not sure if he did there, Natalie. Let's play a song. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Foobar Radio. And we're back. We're back. Um, we're back. Um, put, pull, pull up your pants and get out your ears because we are... Oh, I'm sorry. Me and Nathaniel use the songs as a toilet break, but you listening back, you've probably either got your headphones in so you, you, can, you can go to the toilet whenever. You, know? you might be on the toilet now. Uh... Uh, but you probably don't use the brakes to, um, to 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 switch off the show and do something else like we do. Uh, you're, you're listening to the song. If you're listening to it live on the radio or streamed on the Fubar channel, yeah. but if you're just listening to it as a downloadable podcast, there are no songs. What the fuck are you talking about? Get on with it. You're wasting our lives and yours, Nick. Over to Nathaniel. Nathaniel! <laughs> and then I kept talking. <laughs> Nathaniel, um, uh, what, have you, you, what have you done this week? Have you seen anything that you want to uh, chat about? I've been to the cinema, Nick. Oh! Um, how was that? <laughs> it was good. I saw a film. I saw the film Inception, a film I'd never seen before. You've never seen Inception? Never seen it. What? I think came at a time I was really not into Christopher Nolan. I think I've sort of done no. about turn now. I think I like him again. We were talking about him last week, weren't we? Mm. Was it last week? Yeah. I went to see it at the big, the big, what was, is it still the Empire Leicester Square? Is it oh, yeah. World Leicester Square or something? I think it's the big, The one that's got the IMAX screen, and I saw it with five other people. And uh, in a way, I sort of, I always try and do that to sort of look at, you know, how many people are in. And I think especially now, if you're quite fancy... What do you mean? You went, you, went, you went with five people? No, no, I would just had a look at the website. So when you go and look at your tickets, yeah. you can see the whole auditorium and see who's going to this. And I, would have, I would have gone. Hmm? I would have gone. Oh, yeah. I just decided on a morning, though. But yeah. I could have, yeah. What morning? Thursday, last Thursday it was. 
Yeah. Last I Thursday was, morning. I was free, I think. Oh, okay. About uh, 11 in the morning and... Uh, yeah, just... I would have, I'd, have, I'd have done that. I like seeing films in the morning. Right. Because you could, either you could watch another one or two, um, or you've got it done and then you've got the whole day free. Yeah. So, didn't, didn't think. So you didn't think it was... Um, Ah, sorry, I'm just reeling from that. But so you didn't think it was um, just we go, yeah. Just we haven't been to cinema in such a long time, isn't it? And it's quite near where we normally sort of like go to cinema and hang out afterwards. Mm. So it's weird that it didn't. You know, it's just, it's just weird that it didn't cross your mind. But that's fine. Um, yeah. No, no, no. So. You've seen anything this week, Nick? So you liked it then, did you? That was very good, yeah. That was very well done. I really like... I think it's really... You know, it's a very complicated film, and I like that you almost have to be watching it in a cinema to fully comprehend the plot of it. I like that it's essentially... I mean, it's by no means my favourite, but I would have seen it again. Okay. Yeah. Go on. I like that it's like it's essentially just a series of set pieces from beginning to end, and so it's very impressively put together. I think. Yeah. I really like it. That like said, I haven't thought much about it since I saw it, but I really like the experience of watching it. But equally, that might also be that again, I haven't been to the cinema in five months, and so it feels like a big deal to go and sit in a room and with a massive screen in front of you. Why, um, I, so when I did see it, I saw it, when it came out of the cinema, so what was that, 2009, 2008? Yeah, 10, it's the 10th anniversary. Right, 2010. So when I first saw it, it was at a regular size screen, so IMAX would have been brilliant for me. Okay. All right. Um... There's that bit, isn't there, when they're all in the snow and it feels a little bit like Goldeneye. Yes. Well, it feels like all kinds of things. It feels like they've got, they're doing various different films, don't they, within the films? Well, so the whole film is basically a metaphor for the film industry. Where you've got Leonardo DiCaprio, he's the director, and then I think you've got uh, Tom Hardy is the locations manager. Uh, they all have a different role in the film industry. And so when they go into the dream worlds, they're all sort of like variations on films as opposed to dreams, yeah? So then when you get to the end and it's like this spy movie, it's all about... Uh, it's all about um, spy movies as opposed to... So when you look at it and it feels like a James Bond film, it's meant to. Um, and I think when they were promoting it... Um, which is the which is okay? This is this is no. It's not pretentious to just talk about a film, uh, but was it is it eight and a half that is Fellini mm -hmm. yeah. about films? Yeah. So I think Leonardo DiCaprio was saying basically it was Christopher Nolan's eight and a half, where, um, which is a film about films, and obviously Inception is about dreams, so it's not really about films, but in actual fact. For Christopher Nolan, apparently there is a reading of it where it is all about films. I hadn't known that or thought about it, but you can absolutely go, yes, it is, I think. 
Yeah. I just watched it. I think you can absolutely go, oh, yeah, that is what it is. It never, never occurred to me while I was watching it, though. It's about the struggles of uh, filmmakers to make big-budget blockbusters. <laughs> Even uh, harder now, I imagine, unless you're Christopher Nolan. Yeah, and Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. Um, I was talking to someone in the week, and uh, they were, like, saying, um, oh, like Kurosawa. And uh, I said, well, what do you mean, like Kurosawa? And they said, oh, you know, pretentious. And um, and I was sort of like, well, I don't know what you mean. And they said, well, I don't either, because I don't know anything about movies. But when you talk to other comedians, they're always bringing up Akira Kurosawa as a shorthand for talking about pretentious foreign films. Really? And I was just like, well, he's not like the worst one to bring up, because he sort of invented the modern... Blockbuster, hmm. you know. So your Jimbo is the good, the bad. It's um, a, a few, for a fistful of dollars, which inspired the Western, which was like one of the most mainstream. It, boy, it reinvigorated the most mainstream uh, Hollywood genre at the time. It created Clint Eastwood, which is one of the biggest stars. Also, yeah, was, I mean. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're very watchable. Like, I mean, I think, I think that's probably true. The secret is, I think that's probably true of most films, uh, foreign language films, that I think put people off that they sort of imagine that you're, um, you're, you're getting something, like you, you've got to eat your veg to get something out of it. Yeah, but I would say that, that if you look at someone like Francois Truffaut, right, and Fellini, right, they're making um, introspective uh, films, you know, um, that, um, I mean, they're those, they're, well, Francois Truffaut was French New Wave and he was making cinema verite films where basically they're all handheld and they're all about little boys running down the road and you can take elements of that and you can put them in something like Goodfellas Right, where you have like freeze frames and all this other stuff, and you go, "Wow, there's the influence." But in terms of watching the film, except for maybe like Jules Aichem, which I think is a very sort of like beautiful, entertaining film, I do find them all a bit of a slog. But when you talk about Akira Kurosawa, he wrote, he made the Hidden Fortress, which is what George Lucas mainly stole off to make Star Wars, which was the biggest film of all time. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like. Um, he did, uh, was it Throne of Blood, which is based on Macbeth, and it's kind of like, well, Macbeth is Shakespeare, which is populist. It's kind of like, Akira Kurosawa saw, the Seventh Samurai is the Magnificent Seven. It's kind of like, it's, he's, the, he's the worst person mm. that makes films with subtitles and he's to say he's pretentious and, uh, and, and non-mainstream and difficult to get into. I think a lot of these people are popular cinema. Fellini, I think, is someone who kind of, for a lot of it, I think a lot of these films are kind of entertainments, and they all made money. That's why a lot of these people were famous, because they were kind of, they were quite popular cinema people in their own countries, and their films did make money. To be but, honest, I never really watched much Fellini. I, um... There's always that intention, and then there's always like that, yikes, I can't really get into this. I would say that on Francois Truffaut, we had to watch. Um, mm. Who made... Oh, no, that's... Um, I, I would say, to be honest, I would say Francois Truffaut is more difficult to get into uh, than uh, fucking Ingmar Bergman. Mm. I find a lot of Ingmar Bergman films... Uh, completely kind of like I think the seventh seal is really entertaining really sort of 
I would say it's mainstream. It's got fantasy elements in it. It's, um, I, say, I think the Virgin Springs is incredible. Uh, Wild Strawberries is... We had to watch Wild Strawberries at university. And I, you know, I've got that on DVD now. I really enjoy that. Um, I haven't watched loads of Ingmar Bergman. I haven't watched, like, the most bleak stuff that influenced... No, I haven't. And it's, it's a, they did an Ingmar Bergman season at the BFI a couple of years ago. And I tried to go and see... I saw about three of them, and I enjoyed all of them. But partly because, in my head, I kept thinking, this is difficult, and I've never seen it, and didn't find that with any of them. I sort of enjoyed all the ones I saw. Uh, I saw one what, Ingmar Ingl- Bergman? Yeah, I saw uh, Seventh Seal, The Serpent's Egg, which is David Carradine and set in between the wars, and is basically a science fiction film, but you didn't really realise till the end. Um, and uh, I saw Summer with Monica, and they're all, they're like, it's that kind of... I think you sort of imagine a lot of times that these films might be difficult, but they're just not. They're great, you know. I think it's, I think it's scary. That's what I miss about the BFI, I would say. That's what I miss about the BFI the absolute most, mm. is um, they show films that you are not 100% on, you know, and uh, you get a ticket... And you're like, fucking hell, three hours, not sure about this. And they're amazing. They're sort of, they're, and they're the opposite of what a Transformers movie is, you know? And you can, go to Transform- you can go to a Transformers movie and spend 70 quid on two tickets to the IMAX and feel like you've been ripped off. Or you can spend a tenner at the BFI and you can just like, be absolutely... Trans- and it sounds so wanky, but it's the magic of cinema. It's what's—it's it's like what Samantha Morton was talking about last week, where cinema isn't... And, I, and I, I obviously had thought about it in a certain way, but not the way that she sort of, like, explained it, where it's not just, um, you know, watching uh, people that are dead on a big screen that are sort of, like, um, creating emotions that you can relate to now. You know, timeless emotions. Whether you can relate to um, the things that they're doing, the jobs that they're doing, the language that they're talking. If uh, Films are all about sort of like connecting humans with emotions a lot of the time, unless you're Christopher Nolan. And uh, and what I... It's not just... It's not just that. It's literally capturing... A moment, and what Samantha Morton was saying was, film is so expensive that you've only got a few tries to get that right. So when you hear about Stanley Kubrick taking like 150 takes to get Shelley Duvall walking up a thing, it's just—I mean—the amount of money that they spent on that film. Whereas normally it'll be like two or three takes. You've got two or three takes to get this moment. So when you see all of these films and all these amazing performances, they're just sort of like these moments in time that are captured on screen and they connect us all together and I think that that's beautiful. And the BFI, they show these films that you're not 100% on, like an Ingmar Bergman season. You think, can I be fucked to do that? Um, and you get a ticket and you sit down and they're amazing experiences. And I would say that, you know, I think they had a Fellini season, but I wish I'd seen Umbrellas of Cherbourg and uh, when, when it was on, because I tried to watch that on DVD, and I got distracted, and I was sort of like looking, and it's all subtitled, and it was—it's got a weird pace to it, and I didn't really get into it, and I was sort of really gutted about it. 
Um, and I'd like to see some Fellini. And I just think that going to see it at the BFI is incredible. And, um, yeah, and I think all of the screening experiences I've had of something like Truffaut or something like Akira Kurosawa have been sort of like either public screenings or screenings at university and college. And you have to sit there and watch them. And when you stop resisting, they're actually great. Yeah. And also, you're, you're also allowed not to get anything out of it. You can also get to the end of it and go, didn't do anything for me. And that's fine as well. Not everything's for everyone. I think that's... And you will, you will respond to some things and not others, but it shouldn't put you off seeing everything as a whole. Absolutely. Seeing, like... It's just... Get, it, it, it's almost to find out whether you like it or not. Do you like this? Yeah. You'll go, yeah. Absolutely. And it's, it's sort of... It's, it's, it builds up your, uh, your paint box of uh, criticism hmm. and of opinions, you know. Uh, if you work out what you don't like about that, then you can apply that to stuff that you do like, and then you can work out what you like about something. I mean, it's it's fucking obvious stuff, and maybe it's patronising, but this is sort of like stuff that is occurring to me as I go through it. And it's like when I was saying about my friend Chris, and he likes a certain type of director. I've never thought about that. I've never thought about the fact that he likes these very sort of like. Um, technically brilliant but quite emotionally cold movies. And I don't think he's an emotionally cold person. You know, he's one of my best friends. But he likes the specific kind of film. Yes. And when it comes to me, I like, I like very emotional films. I like films that make me cry and make me laugh. And I also like films that um, uh, bring out kind of like... Um, you know, like body horror movies and 80s horror movies, and I find them funny and exciting and exhilarating. Um, but then I also like old black and white Japanese movies. So it's about, I don't know, films are amazing. Um, on that note, I've got an apology to make to one of our former fan club members, oh. Original Flavour, right? Now, Original Flavour came on, and we asked them what their favourite film was. And they yeah. said, law-abiding citizen. And yes. at the time, I absolutely fucking could not believe that law-abiding citizen was anyone's favourite film, right? Stars Gerard Butler and Jamie Foxx. And it's got a really good supporting cast, actually. Um, I thought it was like a gangster film. Um, and it's not. Uh, it was made in 2009... It's a 90s movie. It, it, no, it's made in 2009. It feels exactly like a 90s movie, like The Bone Collector, like a second-grade, mm -hmm. second-tier John Grisham-type thriller. It's sort of The Bone Collector meets Saw meets, I don't know. I do still think Original Flavour, if you're listening, I know you're listening every week, I still do think you're both crazy for saying <laughs> that Laura Biden Citizen is your favourite film. But I watched two films yesterday. I watched The Call, starring Halle Berry, which is like one of them 90s thrillers meets uh, Silence of the Lambs, meets Phone Booth, meets uh, Cell, starring Kim Bassinger and Jason Statham. All right? So it's sort of... It, they were both really sort of like similar in terms of... like They're both on Netflix. They're both sort of like 90s sort of inspired thrillers. 2009 was Lord Biden Citizen... Uh, 2013 was the set, was uh, the call. Um, probably preferred the. Hmm, I thought the call was all right. Royal Biden citizen, uh, citizen is not a piece of shit. 
But it's a very ugly film, and it's very difficult to work out who whose side you meant to be on. I thought for a minute you were going to announce it as your new favourite film. No, but I guess it's not really so much of an apology. It's more of a... I thought it was just this generic shit gangster film starring Gerard Butler. So I thought, what the fuck? And then when I watched it, I'm even more confused that it could be anyone's favourite film because mm-hmm. it's got such a mean... got such a nasty, mean spirit to it. And The Call is sort of like... Um, and when I was watching it, it felt like a Sandra Bullock movie. Um, and then it's Halle Berry. And it feels like so much like a Sandra Bullock film. And then I read, and I was just like, I've got no idea if this is good or bad. So I read the Empire reviews afterwards. And Empire was like saying, feels like a 90s Sandra Bullock movie. And you go, yeah, it really does. It really does. Um, anyway, but it feels like really heavily influenced by sort of Science of the Lambs as well. Um, I don't know. Two, if you're looking for 90s thrillers and you've ran out of 90s thrillers, try these two thrillers from 2009 and 2013, because they're basically 90s thrillers that that just never got made. They're, yeah, in the wrong time, in the wrong place at the wrong time. Oh, God. Are you ready? You did some fan mail? Let's do some fan mail. <laughs> um, you ready, Brian? Yeah! All right, here we go. Dear Nick and Matt, after listening to your latest episode with Samantha Morton, I started watching Harlots. It's such a great series. It's so true. You guys have a five-star show with five-star guests. Cheers, Dan. Not really a question, Dan. Hi, Nick and Matt. How are you doing, boys? I recently got into cooking. Are you into cooking as well? What is your favourite recipe? Thanks, John. What's your favourite recipe? I don't really, like, I'm very poor at cooking things, really. Um, and, and, and actually, the one time I've ever, like, whenever I try and cook something, it is, I, from a recipe, I always do like it. And I'm really pleased with myself. But I can never be bothered. It always feels like such a, a pain for me. I know you're much better at it. And you sort you of create can. things yourself, don't you? You kind of... Yeah, I do make stuff up. I haven't really been cooking in lockdown. Um, I've been sort of like adding stuff to packet noodles. But what I would say is the last week I've been uh, on a diet and I've actually been cooking for myself. And I've really missed it and I really enjoy it. I really enjoy um, putting food together. I've just been eating soup all week, though, vegetable soup. So it's not so fun. But uh, my favourite thing to make is paella. Um, Paella? Yeah. It's my birthday coming up. I don't know what to do. I wanted to invite some people over and cook for them. But I don't know how that's possible. Um, might all change. Might all change. You've got a month or so, haven't you? You've got a... Yeah. What should I do? I save the date and then work it out on the day. Yeah. Yeah, I'll do that. Dear Nick and I hope you're both doing well. I'm new to the fan club, but I'm absolutely loving the geeky film chat. Recently, I was reminded of a film I caught on telly in the early 2000s called Fat Girl. Originally, I was No. Ah, oh, sorry. Ah, oh, sorry. Sorry there, Christopher. I've, I've trampled on your feet again. I got too excited. My name's Brian Johnson. It's just occurred to me, Chris, that me and you both feature on the Alice Cooper album, Hollywood Vampires. You open it up 
and I sing a song of it later. Stacey Calabria treats you every week at fan club. Oh, it's so great, Chris. I've got to tell you, I've been listening to all your audio books every night this week. Anyway, recently I was reminded of a film I caught on telly in early 2000s called Fat Girl. Originally, a madisseur. You absolutely nailed that, Chris. I thought it would be interesting to watch, as I, too, was a fat girl and might be able to relate. Turned out to be awkward, painful, and at one point extremely brutal. Well, I'm sorry I'm using this voice to read down this email. I've never forgotten the final scene of it. Are there any films that you saw on telly by accident that have made a lasting impression? Also, are there films that you know are good but can't watch again because of the emotions related to it? Lots of love from the land of cheese and windmills, Anouk. Um, I'm sure there are. God, we should read these questions before we, we, before we do the show. No, they know the format. Uh, um, hmm. Films I wouldn't want to see again because they're emotionally hard to watch. I actually get quite, um, I quite like a very grim film. I'm quite... You know, that's that's one of the things I kind of come back to. So often if I see something which is quite traumatic or quite upsetting, I probably will go back to it. There's something um, I quite like about that in films I watch. It's a bit of a, a sort of purge, and I do quite like quite grim, um, grim movies from time to time, so I don't know how much I avoid them. I think I lean into that stuff maybe a bit. Um, I, find, I find The Fly very difficult to watch. Um, I think maybe that's just the, the actual special effects. Uh, is it Eden Lake? Yes, is yes. That, is, that the, is that the one with uh, Michael Fassbender in it? It is, and it is a tricky watch, I think. It's, it's a really unpleasant film. But yeah. again, I've watched it a few times, <laughs> which is unusual for that kind of film in that kind of era. But it no. is. I think that is a very grim movie. I think I think that's difficult. Um, and there's also some films that I just am never in the mood to watch, even though I think that they're great. But I can't think of any. Oh. One of the films, one of the films I saw that left a lasting impression on me. Uh, well, we've mentioned it before, I'm sure. Is Trespass, uh, the Walter Hill film? Because I watched that on a black and white dial-up. To, you actually had to tune the TV in. I watched it in my bedroom in the mid '90s. And I loved it. And I was absolutely dismayed to find out that it got two stars in the Radio Times. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. Uh, a film that is a bit like that, I guess, is Kill List, which is a film I really like, but I find it harrowing. Harrowing to watch. Yeah. Um, I, would, I would put that in the same sort of bracket as Eden Lake. Yeah. Uh, oh, and what's the other film? Um, um, oh, it's not sabbatical. What's the... Severance. Hmm. Severance, I find, is a really sort of like fun and entertaining film in a way, but it's also so grim and sort of bleak, and all the characters are cunts, and it's sort of like, it, yeah, I find that sort of like, I'm never sort of quite in the mood for that. Um, uh, but in terms of films that I found really depressing, I think, uh, yeah, I know that there are some, but maybe I've just blocked them out. One Night at McCool's, I find... People keep... That's come up a lot this week. Um, one Night at McCall's is this really weird film. It's got one of my all-time favourite people in it, Paul Reiser. And I just think that 
people keep saying it's shit, and I, and I don't think it's shit. It's produced by Michael Douglas. It's really weird. He puts in this really sort of, like, um, grounded straight performance, even though he's wearing sort of, like, this ridiculous toupee. And it's sort of like it's got Andrew Dice Clay in it. Uh, and someone was like, oh, yeah, it's got Matt Dillon, Liv Tyler, and John Goodman in it. And I couldn't even remember that they were in it. It's got, like, quite this big, weird cast. Um, Wasn't it like another one that was like a sort of Tarantino knockoff one? Yeah, sort of. But I think the problem is that it's sort of like it's it's almost played as this really broad comedy, but it's not very funny. And all the characters are absolutely despicable in it. And so there's no one to root for, no one to like. I think um, that's it. I would say something else. I remember in, in the very early days of fan club, Paul Reiser was one of the people we were looking at trying to get on, and maybe. We should look into that again, Natalie, because I think we both really like Paul Reiser. I love Paul Reiser. Um, we've got one more thing, and then we've got our... Uh, oh, oh. He said no, he didn't want to do it. Well, maybe ask him again, because uh, we've uh, got 100 episodes under our belt now. And I'll tell you what, just uh, send him in the direction of the iTunes reviews. I'm sure that'll yeah. change his mind. One more one more thing, and then we go to our guest. Hi, guys! Rosie Shaw! I've seen Russell Brand's thoughts in the video he made on that WAP video on feminism. What do you think about strong female artists exploring and enjoying sex and sexuality in their music? I think Brand is an idiot. Thanks, Oh, sorry, 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 Chris. What do you think about strong female artists exploring and enjoying sex and sexuality in their music? I think Brian is an idiot. Thanks, Samira. Um, it's, hmm. I don't know. I haven't seen this video. I've, I've heard of things around it, so I've sort of been. I don't. I don't really know anything about it. I'm sure it's. I'm sure it's fine. It's more up to them. I think. From the impression, it seems weird that. Brand is kind of, you know, forced himself into an argument that he's not, he doesn't need to be in. Uh, but I haven't seen his video either, so I don't know. What's the argument? I don't know. That's what I'm trying. It seems to be, I think he's criticising the video. But again, I haven't, I haven't seen either. He basically does, I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen, I haven't seen loads, but I mean... He does stand-up shows where he just talks about how good he is at fucking the whole time and then winks at the audience as if, like, get in line, and then he gets off stage. And you go, how can you ever comment on anyone else? I think if it's art, then it's up to the artist. They should be allowed to do and talk about whatever they want to talk about, and it's up to us to sort of either work out what their point of view is or to say that we like it or we don't like it as a consumer or as um, as a spectator. But if... if I, I mean, I don't really know what the argument is, but what do you think about... The question is, what do you think about strong female artists exploring and enjoying sex? I think that... In their music. I would say that everyone is allowed to explore and enjoy sex. And sexuality, and everyone is allowed to explore their sexuality in their music... Everyone should be allowed to create music. If you're lucky enough to be able to sell more than, let's say, 15 records at the end of a gig, then God bless you. <laughs> is, that, is that good enough? Right, we've got to play a song now, and then we're going to go up to our guest. We are. I'm thinking about it, it's over. and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Foo Bar Radio. And we're back! Are we back? 
Mm-hmm. We're back. We're back. We're back. We're back. Live. In the, we're not live. Pre-recorded. In the studio. We're in our, we're in our bedroom. We're not in our bedroom. We're in our, well, I'm in my living room. Anyway, I'm Nick. This is... Nathaniel Metcalf. And we're joined back with Joey Scadani. Um, hello, Joey. How are you doing? I am fantastic. How are y'all doing? Oh, very well. Where are you? I am actually currently in Chicago right now. Oh. Yeah, I'm based in New York, but I needed to escape for a little bit. (laughs) So what's in Chicago for you? Well, I went to school here. I did my undergrad here at Northwestern, and my sister lives here. I have a bunch of friends here. Uh, and the weather is nice, and the people are nicer, so... Did you grow up in Chicago? No, I actually grew up in Florida, which, um, I keep making the joke that COVID is following me everywhere I go, because I initially left New York to go to Florida to stay with my parents for a bit, and then now they put Illinois on the travel ban list, or at least the quarantine list, so, um, when I go back to New York, I'll be quarantining for another two weeks. Super fun. (laughs) Okay. So you're currently in quarantine in Chicago, or how free are you? No, I'm not in quarantine in Chicago, but once I fly back to New York, I'll be in quarantine for two weeks. So okay. uh, I may just stay here forever. Who knows? How is life there? Are things opening up there, or are they still quite... Yeah, I mean, Chicago is definitely, I would say, farther along than New York. Uh, they do have gyms open, you know, at limited capacity. Restaurants are the same way. New York is still... Frankly, and sadly, it feels like a cemetery walking around. Like, I mean, there are shops boarded up, there are restaurants boarded up, and I uh, just, I was not doing too well for my mental health. So I was like, goodbye, I'm off to Chi-Town. And um, yeah, things have been, um, they're not 100%, but uh, it's a step up, I think, uh, from New York. So. <laughs> the where feels like home? What city do you think of as home? Oh, good question. Uh, I would say New York for sure, just because I've been there for the past 11 years. But this has been really eye-opening for me. I'm like, is now the time for me to move from New York and get to Chicago? Or do I want to almost like park my ass on a beach in Florida and just call it an early retirement? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) COVID's kind of changed my perception of things. So You're probably too young to move to retire in uh, Florida, right? One would say that, but I don't know. If I, I would kind of wish I could retire now. I'm, like, a little exhausted. <laughs> Maybe just have a break, I think. Yeah. It's always yeah. terrible when people retire and then they come back and you go, didn't you retire? <laughs> and I would love a nice, like, three-year break. <laughs> it's never yeah. going to happen, but... <laughs> um, so you went to school in Chicago? Yes. Now, isn't... Do you watch, have you seen all of like the John Hughes films? Um, no, not a bunch, but um, yeah. <laughs> okay, because they're all set in Chicago, right? Yeah, a lot of, yeah. So, okay, but you don't, okay, I'm not going to pursue it. I'm not an expert if you're going to tri- give me trivia. I'm not going I'm I'm to quiz you, but I, you know, um, but I've, ne- I've never met anyone from Chicago. Oh, really? That lives, that lives in Chicago. I've never had a conversation. We, we, we've talked to a bunch of people from America, and they're either from, uh, they're either based in New York or they're based in Los Angeles. But um, Chicago is, uh, sorry, I just got very excited about it. <laughs> but, um, I, I, won't, I won't hassle you. You have got, 
Um, uh, you, you bring out a book called Basic Bitchin', right? Yes, Basic Bitchin', the cookbook. Uh, now, okay, I am nearly 40, and I live in England. Uh, but even Nat, who is older than me, has heard the phrase basic bitch, but I haven't, right? So really? What is, what's a basic bitch? <laughs> I thought it was universal. Gosh, now I'm, I'm going to be educating you on No, that. I'm just... Uh, I'm just Old. <laughs> no, I would say, at least in America, basic bitch is kind of that, if we're going to be going off stereotypes here, it's kind of that vapid white girl who's void of culture and uh, kind of partakes in what is most comfortable in life. And that is maybe going to Starbucks and getting her pumpkin spice latte to sip on at the park uh, while her boyfriend takes pictures of her for Instagram. <laughs> you know, she's into Ugg boots. Um, but what I kind of wanted to do is, like, flip the script a little and show that we all are kind of a little bit basic. And in actuality, like, basic is more so synonymous with comfortable and, uh, you know, there are a lot of foods associated with the basic bitch lifestyle, like avocado toast, acai bowls, uh, cauliflower pizza, whatever's trendy or, you know, healthy. So I kind of, you know, took a step back because I'm the type of person who really likes to travel the world, experience new cultures. And being basic was kind of like my respite to the complexities of everyday life. Because I'm a very complex person and I embrace my inner basicness to take a pause <laughs> that's interesting because it's almost what's what's considered basic is almost things that would have been new and trendy but they're something that have kind of hit a, a sort of mainstream you mean that exactly. would have once have been quite sort of exciting exactly. new yeah like take something like kale you know where kale <laughs> had its moment but now it's like Kale is, like, quintessential, like, basic bitch superfood. Um, and when something is played out and overused, I would say it then becomes basics. <laughs> right. But it's not necessarily, then, something that's very old-fashioned or sort of food we don't eat anymore, just something that was, was at once new and trendy, which has then had a sort of mainstream kind of... People have accepted it, and it's now very commonplace. Exactly, yeah. And it's, they've accepted it, and it's become so popular that it's, like, almost comically so. You know, it's like, oh, that basic bitch and her, you know, her crepes and her mimosa at brunch on Sunday, um, wearing her J. Crew um, flannel and um, juicy sweatpants. <laughs> sure. They're not, like, pioneering a look. They've seen it in a magazine and they're replicating it. it replicating it times, like, 7 million, you know? Yeah, it's like, it's a replication on steroids. <laughs> but the idea is it's more that rather than singling these people out and making fun or whatever, you're now embracing it and saying this is what... We're, we're, People actually like this stuff. What's wrong with it? Why not have it? Exactly, exactly. I, I don't agree with the people who... That defines 100% of their life, but I think there's a little bit of basic in all of us. I mean, even something as simple as just wanting to throw on sweatpants and eat a pint of ice cream at the end of a day, you know, that's been associated with almost, like, being basic, like, and there are memes and gifs, you know, making fun of that lifestyle. But I'm like... 
that's that's what, something we all want to do and can relate to. So, if anything, I think I aspire to basic. I think yeah. I, I, that's my. Uh, I try. I'm trying to be basic. Yeah, that's my ambition. Perfect. Uh, this yeah. book's for you. <laughs> because to me, when it, your book is basic bitching, I think of bitching as being the '90s thing that means great. So yeah. I'm, I'm like, uh, I'm not even there. I'm not even there yet. I'm not even there, Joey. I'm miles away. I'm trying to get to the time where I can use a term like basic bitch and then not worry whether I'm allowed to say it or not. It sounds... Is this offensive? Of course, I'm and a basic also, bitch. And also, Joey, you won't know this, but Nathaniel never swears. And uh, to get Nathaniel to say the word bitchin and bitch as many times as he has <laughs> in the last minute uh, has sort of made my week, really. Um, I love that. <laughs> have you, so have you always... So you, you're a radio and TV uh, presenter, personality. Um, so how long have you been into sort of like food and cooking? And yeah, you know, it's interesting. I actually started out like very picky as a kid when it came to food. And I actually, my dad coined the nickname Joey Bologna because all I would eat as a kid were like bologna sandwiches with French's yellow mustard. And uh, I think it transitioned over the years where, you know, my parents almost like forced me to be exposed to different foods. And I tried like sushi when I was in third grade and I ended up liking it. So slowly but surely I was developing like a taste to things that were more complex and um, now delicious, I would say. But uh, my real love for food didn't happen, I would say, until like late high school, early college, when I was just always obsessed with restaurants, trying new chefs' foods, and then moving to New York completely solidified that. But I wasn't always in food all along. I actually started as an entertainment publicist. I, my career started in television behind the scenes. And I launched um, Honey Boo Boo. I knew she was actually popular across the pond, but... Uh... We, were, we, were reading, we were reading this. So basically, yeah. uh, you are the guy that's responsible for making Honey Boo Boo an international hit. It's 100% me and only me. No. <laughs> it's all you. It's your it's fault, is it? It's all your fault. Um, <laughs> totally. I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> I, don't, I don't read... I mean, our, sh our show is uh, about stuff that you're a fan of and stuff that you love. Yeah. And what I have found increasingly week by week... This is our 100th episode, by the way. You're very welcome. Wow, uh, I feel so special. You are special. Oh, um, <laughs> what I've learned, what I've learned increasingly, is that I do not have my finger on the pulse of uh, popular culture or mm. contemporary society. Uh, I basically I live under a rock, right? And uh, I like the same things that I liked when I was a teenager, right? Mm. All of them. And what I would say is, even I heard of Honey Boo Boo. That's pretty, like, I, I know what she looks like, I know who she is, I know what her mum looks like. So that's sort of incredible to be part of something that is, it's like McDonald's, do you know what I mean? If you go to sort of, or Coca-Cola, you go to like the rainforest and they recognise the logo. Yeah. Uh, to be part of something that, that's that recognisable and identifiable, that must be pretty incredible, right? It was an insane moment. You know, I didn't, we kind of knew we had something special. She was first, she first appeared on an episode of Tallers and Tierras. And um, they actually were a backup. Someone had dropped out in production and the family was kind of just a filler. And 
obviously it created a huge viral sensation around like her quotes. And I was only like 24, 25 at the time. And my boss was like, all right, um, we're going to give them a show and we need to assign a publicist to it. Are you interested? And it was like 100% yes. I was like, this, this is like, I feel like people who live abnormal, not wouldn't say abnormal because it is normal for that area, but very different and unique lives. That was like my bread and butter because I was also on shows like My Strange Addiction and My Crazy Obsession where it was people who like, collected rats and like drank their own blood and <laughs> so i was like oh this is in my wheelhouse i've got you i'm the expert on this um but yeah to see i think it really only hit me when obama who was president at the time like mentioned her um in a speech saying well i got honey boo boo's endorsement last night she said that she was for obama on kimmel and i was like whoa all right this is totally <laughs> gone beyond just the scope of entertainment. This is now completely embedded in like American society. So surreal, surreal moment for sure. <laughs> what was your origin then? How did you get to that point then? So you, were you just studying to sort of be a publicist and things or was, what's, what's the journey? Where, where's the origin of you? Yeah, yeah. I, so I kept things very broad in college. I studied communications cause I, and I did some publicity internships in college and, um, you know, ultimately, I knew deep down inside I was always wanting to be a writer. I actually prefer to be in front of the camera instead of behind the scenes. But I graduated in 09, which is was damn near impossible to find a job in America. So I was like, I'm going to take what I can get and make it work. Um, so PR, I just gravitated towards. Um, and then after, you know, about five years, I was like, this is fun. I've learned a lot, but ultimately I want to be writing. Um, and that's when I, you know, transitioned into editorial and started out as a TV editor and then gravitated towards food and travel. So, um, it wasn't, it was part of the initial plan to get into PR and do that sort of thing, but, uh, it wasn't the end goal. Okay. So as a TV editor, you don't mean in the terms of cutting or do you? No, no, not the production editor. I was writing and review. I was writing about shows, reviewing them, recapping them, um, doing talent interviews. So, and so, at what point did you transition to being in front of the camera? So it started actually when I got the TV editor role. Um, I kind of knew the space, especially coming from TV publicity. I had relationships with some producers and bookers at shows that I used to put my talent on. I was like, hey, y'all owe me some favors because I gave you Honey Boo Boo. You know, I'm like, now you're going to put Joey Sladady on. <laughs> uh, so that, that started it. I kind of just positioned myself as an entertainment talking head to talk celebrity news. And, uh, and then the rest is history. It kind of just would parlay it into whatever I was working on. So then it turned into restaurant roundups and um cooking segments so it's been an interesting journey and that was always a plan was it that you wanted to be in front of camera yeah yeah part of the plan i don't know it's like so many people in front of the camera they're such like divas and everything's so contrived and i was never really into that i was because i'm like straight up i mean if you read the book it's like I, i'm no filter and i'm no bullshit um so i was like that's gonna be kind of hard as like a presenter who's very like polished and buttoned up and like how are you today like nah that's not really my shtick so um but it would be nice is like now coming at it as an editor and I could be booked for just like my personality and not as someone who's there to 
just deliver information in an unbiased way. So. <laughs> so you don't come from a restaurant background, but you're sort of more. You're more like a food fan, right? You're kind of a. Well, is that, that be a fair way of putting it? Yeah, yeah. I always say I'm a professional eater, not a professional chef. Um, I have no culinary experience, but my dad actually did own restaurants when I was growing up. So I was exposed to restaurant culture. My first job, I was like 10 years old. I was a host, and um, I like. I have just a true appreciation and respect for chefs in that industry, especially right now where things are so beyond awful. Um, but yeah, so it's like, it's weird. I, I do have that experience, but did I go to Le Cordon Bleu? Nah, I did not. <laughs> um, I am self-taught and I still chop garlic like I am wearing acrylic nails. So <laughs> The book is more, it's more kind of home cooking, right? And making things for yourself. Exactly. It's meant to be easy. It's meant to be for that amateur chef, someone who maybe has never even tried cooking something more complex than microwavable macaroni and cheese. So I uh, think that's great. Can you talk us through some of your dishes? Like, yeah. Because you've got stuff on there because I love cooking, right? And I yeah. and I think I'm I'm maybe not the, the most adventurous cook, but I sort of make up recipes. I, I love it. And you've got stuff in here that I find quite intimidating to look at. Like, like I what? Could, I could eat this everyday sushi rolls. Yeah, but we break it down for you. <laughs> that's know, the point of the book, right? Yeah, that's the point of the book. We're going to make it as basic as possible. But yeah, I, my goal was, and I'm just like you, Nick, in that I, when it comes to food, I like... I worked with a recipe developer. I had to because my idea of cooking was I'm in the kitchen, most likely two in the morning after a night out drinking, let's be honest here. And I'm just doing a dash of this, a dash of that. And I'm like, ooh, I really need someone to actually put that into measurement form because I just eyeball everything. But something like a sushi roll, I initially was intimidated to tackle. But I realized at the end of the day, it really is like only a few ingredients. You know, you just... To get sushi rice, it really is just about making rice and putting, like, a rice wine vinegar in it to make it sticky. Um, To get a proper fish, it's just about getting something that's, like, sushi-grade and going to, you know, your your counter at the grocery store and and asking for it, Um, asking what's fresh, what was delivered that day. So... I feel like it's just it just requires taking that one extra little step to be able to make these things that are so seemingly complex. Take like a macaron, for example. Like everyone looks at those desserts, they're like, oh, I can never make French pastries. It's such a science. And it is, baking is a science. But really, if you just follow the steps to a T, and I'm like dumbing it down, you know, for kids to even make it. You can actually, it actually yields an amazing result in something that you will be impressed with, um, impressed by, and can make forever. Once you master it, you're, you, you're done. What are antidepressant red velvet cake pops? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you don't, you mean you've never heard of those? <laughs> what, what is, what's the pops part of it? I know what antidepressants are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But what, well, what are the pops? Uh, all the t- all the titles are puns, or they're 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 just making fun of you know uh, I would say like little vignettes from my life. And um, cake pops are super easy. You really just take cake and you mash it up with your hands in a balls and um, add icing to it, and it stays intact. <laughs> yeah, and then you dip it in a frosting um, or a melted chocolate, whatever you prefer, um, over a double broiler, and then you put it on a stick and 
They're cake pops. But it's not I'm a like, thing. It's not a thing that exists. Yeah. Oh, they're really popular in the States. I don't know if okay, that's so not what? a thing in... Uh, so hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, Cherry. <laughs> what, what, hang on, hang on. So you get a cake. Yeah. You bake a cake. <laughs> yeah. And you get a stick. And you mash the cake up in your hands. Put a <laughs> stick in it. Not you mash the cake um, in a bowl. <laughs> like you'll make the cake or the cake mixture. Um, the cake mixture, exactly. But hang on, hang on. the cake, just the cake mixture. Like before, yeah. you, you haven't cooked it yet. You know, you cook it. You cook the cake first. So you cook the cake first. You cook the cake first. Then you smash then it up. It comes out, yeah. And then you take that cake and you make some of your frosting. And you mix the frosting with the cake, and what it'll actually create is, like, these rounded balls. Like, it gets, like, sticky but compact. Then you stick the uh, the cake, the, the stick in it, like a lollipop stick. Um, and then what you can do is melt down some chocolate over a double broiler and dip those things right in the chocolate. Set them out to cool. You could top it with sprinkles. You could top it with nuts. Um, and top then it with fluoxetine. Uh, top it with what? Roxetine, any any <laughs> antidepressants that you want. A little bit of powdered Xanax, you know, uh, it's, it's all, it's whatever your heart desires. That's but yes. crazy. I think I've not heard of this. This is it. I think in this country we are, we're, we're aiming to be basic bitch then. This is, this is, we're not even on this yet. Y'all are always I more the sound of it, right? Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so you get, hang on, hang on, hang on, Joey. You get cake, smash it up, you put, you mix it together with the icing so you don't even have to chew it, right? Then it's, then it's like, oh my I mean, God. It's disgusted, but it sounds delicious. No, it sounds incredible, but also I just think that I just, there's something that I, I don't, I don't need in my life this week. I've just been eating vegetable soup. I'm on a diet. You oh my God. Life. They're so mainstream here that Starbucks sells them. Um, and I'm shocked that it's not a thing overseas, but, um, I will say the reason why cake pops, cake pops are amazing is because when you do mix the cake with the frosting, it retains the moisture. And, um, so when you then coat it in chocolate, it's just so rich and decadent and, uh, moist. So, and- so, so what keeps it together? The frosting, right? So you frosting. Yeah, or the chocolate. So if you do, if you dip them in chocolate afterwards or a frosting, it creates a shell that keeps right, it so, so you let it set so it's hard, yeah. right? Let it set, yep. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that sounds amazing. That sounds fucking... I mean, that sounds fucking mental. <laughs> I mean... So are you basically like, essentially eating frosting with bits of cake bits in it? Um... It's more, no, it's more still cakey. <laughs> like the frosting really mixes with the cake and creates this just like very moist, dense ball. <laughs> I've got this terrible feeling that me and Nick haven't heard of these things, but they're used over here. Doesn't make a hate mail. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I mean, Joey's not seen any John Hughes films, so it's fine, okay? We're all- I'm just not expert at John Hughes films. I thought you were going to give me trivia. I was like, nope, not today. <laughs> uh, fine, it's fine. I, that is right. Okay, so what's the ratio? 60-40, 75-25? Um, it depends. It's obviously up to preference. So I would say a nice 75 to 25. It's, you're really only using the frosting to make everything adhere. 
And how um, small are the grains of cane? <laughs> well, we all know balls come in all shapes and sizes. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I would say I roll my balls. I, I'm, no, I'm no size queen, so I roll them out into, I would say, like, oh, golf ball, I would say is a little bit too big, but um, a slightly smaller than a golf ball. Okay. So, all right. So you can just pop one in your mouth. You can, yes. Well, some have more problems than others, but I would say I am very good at popping a single one into my mouth. Sure, right. Okay, cool. (laughs) But, like, with the cake, how small do you break the cake up? Um, Into, like, it's well, what's going to happen is even if you break it up into, like, sand particles, let's say, it's still going to all adhere because of the frosting that you put in and congeal. So ultimately, even if it's, like, larger bits of cake, you're still going to smash it together with that frosting, and that frosting is going to break it down. I can't and it's believe create something very like it's almost like pasty. I can't you know believe I'm starting to think I have seen these things in Starbucks now. Yeah, we do have them. Sticks. I think we do totally have them. <laughs> I don't know. If, I I don't. I, yeah, but I don't go into Starbucks, do I? But they're probably called something like so different and more amazing than cake pops. Like, you always probably call them something like... You're being like, flattering. Lovely lollies or, like, something, you know? <laughs> sure. Yeah. In America, we're just like, cake on a stick. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love the idea of it, man. Diabetes rolls. Um, yeah, <laughs> fucking hell. Right, okay, okay, fine. It does sound like the sort of thing that someone would have made up in lockdown, though. Like... Sure. They've had too much time on their hands, and then they've made this thing. Well, we call them Frankenstein foods, um, which are kind of like amalgamations of different things. So think of this as just a cross between a lollipop and a cake. Right. Like cauliflower like, uh, pizza, right? Yeah, there you go. Um, and that's just using cauliflower yeah. <laughs> instead of dough. <laughs> yes, because we have all these healthy bitches out there who like to do keto and cut carbs. And you can make a dough with just cauliflower, rice, and cheese. And you, it's, bit, it's not carb-free entirely because cauliflower does have carbs, but cauliflower also has fiber, which counters your um, carb intake. So that's another thing that goes in the base of a lifestyle. It's like one person had to create cauliflower pizza, and then every basic now has to go in and get a cauliflower crust because they want to not have carbs. It became super mainstream, and now everybody, you know, Sure, and you can eat as much cauliflower pizza as you like and then finish off with a uh, cake pop. Cake pop. And you sort of, like, balance it out. Hey, life is all about balance. There you go. Like, what do you think of cauliflower pizza? Do you think it matches to pizza? I, so listen, I'm not going to sit here and say that it is, oh, my God, it's so much, it's better <laughs> than crust. Like, fuck those people. Like, <laughs> I, that you, like, I get it if you have a gluten intolerance or an allergy, but um, I no, it's not going to be better than bread. But um, what I do like about cauliflower as a base is that it does take on the taste of whatever is on top of it because cauliflower tastes like nothing. <laughs> so... Um, you can go ham on, like, the toppings and put, like, an amazing sauce, you know, different type of cheese, pepperoni, and that's what you're really going to taste at the end of the day. I really like cauliflower, and I like cauliflower yeah. rice. Um, oh, there you go. I really like it, but then it's also one of those things where if you fancy pizza, but you don't fancy... Uh, like, I find that carbs really slow me down, and I get really tired. Um, so I tend to, like, avoid them in the day. Um 
And it's just one of those things that if you fancy pizza, but you don't fancy, like, all of the calories, you can just, like, swap it out for, like, that pizza that week. Yeah, for sure. It's a good alternative to help you cut back. How easy is that recipe? So easy. The only thing that people mess up is, because it's literally just, like, three ingredients. It's the cauliflower rice, the cheese, um, and an egg. You actually use an egg to help find it. That's what cooks it. Do you put um, the cheese? You put the cheese in the actual dough. Is that right? Yeah, with the rice cauliflower. So you make your rice cauliflower. You put the cheese and the egg in it, and then if you want to put like some Italian seasonings. The only problem that people seem to have is they get uh, they don't wring out their cauliflower rice well enough, and you definitely want to get rid of all that moisture. Otherwise, it's going to be soggy crust. Um, and I'm talking like literally putting it either through cheesecloth or even a kitchen towel and just wringing the crap out of it until it's like dry. Um, and then what's going to happen is your cheese is actually going to absorb some of that leftover moisture, keep it compact, put it in the oven for about 15 minutes, and then you put your toppings on and throw it back in the oven for another five. What sort of cheese do you use? I, do you know what I find? Have you ever come, have you ever come over to, have you ever come over to England? Yes, I love it there. I always, I keep saying if Donald Trump's reelected, I'm moving to London. Not that ever, not that your guys' political, you know, climate is like yeah, amazing, but, but I find I find that um, Boris Johnson's easier to ignore. I think that I think and that, Trump is not. So I'm like, you, you can't remove for like. Well, maybe it's just the YouTube channels that I follow, but yeah. I basically don't know what's going on politically in England. But in America, I'm sort of like all over it. It's just like, what's he fucking said today? Absolutely yeah. fucking incredible. But the cheese, right? Yeah. Something's got to be done about the cheese. The cheese in America is so different. I mean, cheddar cheese in America is so different from cheddar cheese in England. Yeah. Well, you're thinking of mass market cheese, which is, like, not really cheese. <laughs> it's like, a, a lot of the cheese in the States, yeah, it's not, um, it's just... It's like I think they said, you know, like the American cheese slices, like the craft singles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those I heard are not actually yellow when they're made. They're actually clear and they dye it yellow. <laughs> I watched. Do you know what though? In in uh, lockdown, I've actually watched uh, YouTube videos on how to make it. Um, oh, interesting. And it starts. Well, you say that. <laughs> 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 but it starts, it's, you start off with some cheese, but it's not all cheese. Yeah. Um, you do start off with real cheese. I really like, I mean, I like cheese, right? But um, I really like the uh, bright yellow American craft cheese. I, do. I, think, I, think, I think that's it. Yeah, I think perhaps because it seems like there's something, so there is something fake about it, but it's not, it's not cheese, but I like it. <laughs> It's, it's like, like um, the Latin square. <laughs> but it's like the it's like the cheese that you get um, with uh, nachos. It's like nacho cheese that you get in the cinema. Yeah, yeah, kind of. It's like <laughs> melted down. It's like, but that's what it that's what it feels like. You get American yeah. cheese and you melt it down. But I've tried that and it doesn't work. So mm. I, what I'm saying is, I've been all around the world. I've yeah. eaten all sorts of. I've eaten French cheese. I've eaten Italian cheese, I've eaten German cheese, I've eaten Swiss cheese, I've eaten, eaten American cheese, I've eaten uh, Welsh cheese, I've eaten Irish cheese. My favourite cheese is nacho, <laughs> nacho cheese. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's with, a nice, with, a, with a really good glass of uh, red wine. Uh, there you nacho go. cheese. 
Nacho cheese is the perfect accompaniment. Maybe you are a basic bitch all along. You absolutely are. I absolutely am. I absolutely am. I didn't realise that Ugg boots were now basic. If they are, I'll just get myself a set. I will say, though, that in America's defense when it comes to cheese, some of the best cheese is actually found in Wisconsin. And the reason that's the case is they're like terroir or whatever they, whatever the animals were eating and the climate um, that they're, the, the, uh, the caves that they're putting their cheeses into are very much um, similar to those found, I think it was in Switzerland. Um, and so a lot of Wisconsin dairy farms win these like international cheese awards and beat France, beat Switzerland. It's like, it's legit, and I've actually been out to their farms, and um, they're freaking amazing. So, of course, of course, but it's also like uh, like uh, Californian wine. I mean, it's there kind of go. like yeah. it 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 it's comp- it, it can compete on an international level. Yeah. Of course, you make good cheese, but the thing is, you can put a piece of Swiss cheese in a burger, or you can put blue cheese in a burger, or you can put cheddar cheese in a burger, and none of it ever tastes as good as a square of bright orange <laughs> craft cheese. It's, it's the best. Like, for what it does, it's absolutely yeah. perfect. World beaters. World beaters. World beaters. But what I've but what I've been saying for a long time in terms of sort of like um, because it doesn't really taste of cheese, but it's not vegan. It's the only cheese that there's a vegan alternative to that basically doesn't make any difference. If you can get that, you can get like bright orange vegan uh, sort of like craft cheese alternative. And it tastes exactly the same. It's the same mm. consistency when it's melted. And you go, well, if you want to take a bit of... Sorry, this is... I'm not a vegan. I went out with a vegan for two years, and now it's sort of, like, instilled in me. And I was always just thinking, if people didn't want to go full vegan, you could just find... Like, um, like your cauliflower pizza base, right? If you don't want to not eat... If you don't want to give up pizza, just exchange one element of it. But... If you could tell that you're eating a cauliflower-based pizza, I doubt you could tell that you're eating vegan craft cheese. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of, um, and this is like the grossest term ever, there are a lot of nut cheeses <laughs> um, that actually taste amazing. Like, they taste just like cheese. Sometimes even better because you have like more complexity and depth of flavor. <laughs> but, yeah, it's not fun to say, oh, my God, I love nut cheese. <laughs> I do love nut cheese. I don't understand. I don't understand what the issue is. Just love it. Nut cheese. Um, but, um... <laughs> But also, what is, is, is nut cheese better for you than dairy cheese, then? Um, some would argue that, just because it is um, plant-derived and, you know, there's always the case against dairy, but because um, they say dairy is very inflammatory for your body. But I don't know. I mean, I think it just depends. When you're eating cheese, well, I don't know. I was going to say, when you're eating cheese, sometimes it's not in huge volumes, but that's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> I've been known to like eat a block or two in one sitting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it just just depends on the person. I mean, with oh, a block gosh. of cheese, if you're cutting off any cheese, it's almost like half of it's for a sandwich, half of it's for now, right? 
You well, can't I, not. I don't even have it in a sandwich. I don't have it in a sandwich. <laughs> what's your What's your favorite? Oh God! What's your favorite cheese, Joey? Oh my God! I love them all, but I love like an aged Gouda. Um, anything that has those, so they're not actually salt crystals. It's it's called something else. I forget the name of it. But yeah, right. You get those little crunchies. Oh yeah, my yeah. gosh! Yeah, right. Yeah, you get that in you get that in sort of like aged cheddar as well. Yeah, or, yeah, that's good. <laughs> but, um, so Gouda. So you prefer like a hard cheese to a soft cheese? Yeah, definitely a hard cheese to a soft cheese mm. uh, for sure. Have you ever had Cambazola? Had what? Cambazola. I don't think I have. It's, uh, well, it's officially, it's a cross between a Gorgonzola mm-hmm. and a Camembert, right? Okay, I figured that would be the case. <laughs> but it's more like a brie with streaks of blue through it. Gotcha. I'm sure I've, I'm, you know what, I probably have had it. And I, I, think just I think it's a German cheese. Mm. Um, it is... Absolutely, my favourite cheese. I can yeah. eat that like a slice of birthday cake. Like it's <laughs> just the absolute. Have them at the patties and put the meat in the middle. <laughs> oh God, that's like like the opposite of a no. Um, no, that's like um, yeah. I, that's taking it too far, Jerry. Uh, <laughs> it's a shame. It's a shame to have ruined the interview. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's what I'm here for. I'm just here to ruin your life. <laughs> that's, a that's a shame that you, uh, you pushed it too far. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, Cambazola. Well, it's my mm, it's my favourite cheese. Nice. Yeah. Oh my god! You've gone off now. You've, you're wistfully thinking about it now, Nick. Well, you're I'm just thinking. That's the thing. There's this uh, there's this restaurant in uh, Leicester Square, which normally you shouldn't really go to Leicester Square for dinner because it's. It's the, it's the most touristy place in London. But there's this, this is, oh, should I even say it? There's this place underground. It's underneath one of them ticket out places called the Cork and Bottle. And they've got like this, it's, you go in there and it's like being in a French bistro and um, like in the middle of London. And they just have this cheese counter and they do a thing where you can order five cheeses and it comes with this garlic bread and Ooh. butter and cornichons and pickles and stuff. Um, and I haven't been there in like six months since lockdown, and just haven't, just haven't had, just haven't had, just haven't. You know, it's just restaurants are closed, aren't they? And it's just difficult to like find an actual, honest to god treat at the moment. Yeah, yeah, that's rough. But can you go get it just at a cheese counter, and then you'll have it. <laughs> But I don't want to go into... I, I mean, you can get Cambasola other places. The, the, the other thing is I've got, like, um, a Sainsbury's local, which is, like, a small version of a big supermarket at the end of my street, and they don't sell... They don't sell anything. They sell craft cheese slices and mature cheddar, but, like, I don't think they sell much in between. Mm. It's all right. We're talking about my problems now, Joey. Um, but these are international problems. We need people want their nice cheese at their favorite restaurant, and we can't enjoy that right now. It sucks. It's sad. It, it is. Um, I'm told as well that in the UK they're called cake pops, but also known as cakesicles or cake balls. 
Oh, y'all like to get fancy and now equate it to a popsicle instead of a lollipop. What's weird is I would say popsicle is a very American term that we don't really, doesn't yeah. we translate it. So it makes it even weirder. I think these things must be huge, Joe. You've just never come across them. Well, they're not that big. They're about the size of a golf ball. About the size of a golf ball. Slightly less than a golf ball. Slightly less. And yeah. they fit in your mouth. Quite easily, we've discussed. Very, very easily. What's your favourite film, Joey? Oh my gosh, I say my favourite film is Mrs. Doubtfire. Mrs. Doubtfire? Yeah, I, that's just the one movie I can watch on repeat, still laugh every time. I was a ginormous Robin Williams fan, and I was actually a TV editor when he passed away, and that is still, I think, the one celebrity death that affected me the most not to like go sad <laughs> on you guys but yeah i love him um and that movie is just it has every element of a movie that it's got the comedy it's got the drama it's got the real life issues it's just perfection for me it's got pierce brosnan it's got Pierce Brosnan, yeah. I mean, come on now. <laughs> um, it's got a really good cast. I remember, yeah, I, see, the thing is, I was never a huge Robin Williams fan. No? No. It but... was over. It was so great talking to you guys. I hope you the rest of your day. <laughs> um, but, I mean, have you ever seen Patch Adams? Of course. <laughs> oh, you know, like, I mean, listen. <laughs> I mean, that's a weird fucking film, right? Yeah. But he's like, like, it has a purpose. <laughs> he's a doctor at a children's ward for the terminally ill. And then at the end, it turns into, like, a serial killer movie. <laughs> like, it's crazy. Like, you just, like, what the, from the director of Austin Powers. It's fucking, that film's crazy. But yeah. Mrs. Doubtfire is great, I think. I think that it still, it still stands up today. You know. <laughs> no, I think, well, no, I, think, I think Mrs. Doubtfire is a film that uses Robin Williams in a great way, in the same way like Aladdin does. Yeah. That, it sort of uses his talents well, whereas I think Robin Williams was in a lot of movies where they didn't really use him in the right way. That's a great point, because my favourite movies of his are when he's just like quintessential Robin Williams, like Hook. I think he's amazing in Hook. Like... Nobody else could have played that character, you know, other than Robin Williams. So, it's yeah, he, he flourishes in those films where it's like, could you have really found someone else to do that role? No. I think, I think, yeah. uh, but I just think if you look at something like Good Morning Vietnam, they were like, mm -hmm. right, we've got really serious subject matter and, yeah. and we need, basically, we need like a motor mouth uh, radio DJ. And so they've got Robin Williams to actually just do that job. And so yeah. he fits in that film perfectly. But when you do something like Patch Adams and they're like, right, we've got a serious subject matter, we need, like, a motor mouth radio DJ uh, cancer doctor. Yeah. It's kind of like, don't... He's, like, the wrong guy for the... It's, like... Yeah. His style of comedy. It's just... I just don't think that he needed to improvise his way. It's not his fault. Yeah. Well, I'm say, I don't know if I like his dramatic roles, but then I was like, no, that's a lie, because I love him, obviously, in Good Will Hunting and Dead Poet Society. But, um, yeah, he may have been miscast in that. It is, it, does, it is a weird movie, and he's definitely gotten a lot of criticism. He had gotten a lot of criticism over it. But um, did, you, did you ever see Insomnia? 
No, I have not seen Insomnia. See, that's... Uh, we were talking... Before you came on, we were talking about Christopher Nolan films. And mm. I, last week we were saying, basically, that I'm, I'm not a massive Christopher Nolan fan. Interesting. Um, and Nathaniel went to see Christopher Nolan... He went to see Inception this week. But I would say um, Insomnia is my favourite Robin Williams film and probably my favourite Christopher Nolan film. I think that it is... It, I think it's great. Robin Williams is... Did you, did you see One Hour Photo? Mm-mm. See, Robin Williams does a really dark performance in One Hour Photo, but it's quite showy. And Insomnia, it's a really dark film, and it's really dark performance, but it's really, really subtle. And I just thought he was... I th- he's in it with Al Pacino as well, and he basically acts Al Pacino off the screen. He's incredible in it. Yeah. All right. Adding that to the list. That's my, that's my take. That's my take on it. But I see. Yeah. In a dark mood, I'll watch it. <laughs> um, so, uh, so you've got a right. We've come to the end of our thing. Of our thing. I guess it was an interview. <laughs> well, I, guess it was a, I guess it was sort of an interview. Uh, yeah, sure. Come to the end of our little chat. Um, so your book is coming. Is your book out now? My book's out now. Yeah, it came out August fourth. Uh, and it's called Basic Bitchin. And uh, have you got anything else you want to mention? Is there anything else I want to mention? (laughs) Um, No, I mean, other than we're just obviously, I'm saying we as if it's like a collective unit. I'm very excited about my book. Um, I actually also just put out a TV show uh, or YouTube show on Awesomeness TV where you'll get to see a lot of these recipes come to life. Mm -hmm. It's called Dish This. And um, I don't know, is TikTok really big in England? It's big everywhere, but not in my life. Um, <laughs> same. I mean, I went into this. So a lot of like the Gen Z, um, peeps, uh, they're obviously in a TikTok. So we've taken a lot of these TikTok stars and have challenged them to make recipes from the book using only a photo for reference. Um, so that's been another fun project. So if you want to see some of those recipes, including the, um, cauliflower pizza come to life, uh, it's on awesomeness TV on Let's give them the finished product and say, make that. We legitimately just show them a picture. We don't even give them measurements. We're awful. And we're like, go for it. You've got, you know, however many minutes to make this recipe, and it's two people competing, and I pick a winner at the end. We should have done that. I think, I think as a challenge, that sounds like a piece of piss. Uh, which means easy. <laughs> means easy. I could do that. Easy. Um, right, we've got to play a game with you now, Jerry. We're running oh. out of time. Right, okay. so I'm going to hand you over to Nathaniel, and these are the rules. This All is right. the game, Joey, and what you have to say is it's called Better or Worse, and you have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before, based entirely on my own opinion, to score points. Okay. okay. So beginning with Mark Ruffalo... Is Mark Wahlberg better or worse than Mark Ruffalo, according to me? According to so I have to guess what you yeah. think. Yeah, yes. Yeah. We haven't got time to think, Jerry. Wahlberg, but I feel like you would say Ruffalo. Ruffalo is better than Wahlberg. Yeah, Ruffalo is better than Wahlberg. Yeah. You uh, would Emma that. Thompson better or worse than Mark Wahlberg? Better. Emma better. Better for sure. Emma Watson better or worse than Emma Thompson? Worse. 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 Emma Stone, better or worse than Emma Watson? Better. Better. Ooh. Much better. Come on, guys, rattle through this. Jerry, yeah. Yeah. no yeah. thinking yeah. time. 
Sharon Stone, better or worse than Emma Stone? Who? Sharon Stone. Oh. Uh, not now, worse now. Worse. <laughs> worse. Samuel L. Jackson, better or worse than Sharon Stone? Better, better. A better, yeah. Better. Yeah. Uh, Chris Pratt, better or worse than Samuel L. Jackson? Uh, worse. Worse, better to look at. <laughs> worse, worse, yeah. Chris Pine, better or worse than Chris Pratt? Better. Better, uh, correct. Christopher Reeve, better or worse than Chris Pine? Better. Oh, better. better. Keanu Reeves, better or worse than Christopher Reeves? Better, better. Oh, worse. <laughs> worse. Oh, wow! Good score. That's a pretty good score. Is that a ten? You got a ten. You got a ten. You got a ten. What? You got a ten out of ten. Maximum. Are you kidding? Oh you got a ten out of ten. We're episode one hundred. So ten by ten. Jessica Daney has scored a ten out of ten. You join Jen Brister and Jason Manford with ten. Uh, you're better than Ken Cheng, Harry Hill, Luke Morley with nine. Susie Stent, Magical Bones, Samantha Morton with eight. James King, Henry Norman, Johnny Vegas with seven. I mean, he's absolutely smashed that. We haven't got time to celebrate. It's the end of the show. Uh, good luck with everything that you do in your life. Uh, good luck with <laughs> cake balls. Um, fucking Thank you. out now. Basic bitch, you know, no, um, fucking Joey Scudani, uh, uh, welcome to the club. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, what do I win? <laughs> you get a chance of uh, competing with Jen Brister and Jason Manford in uh, nine months' time in a caged death match. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm there for it. <laughs> uh, thanks for listening, guys. Goodbye.